change us from the inside out. There's things that can change us externally and change us, uh, make a better appearance if that's possible, Um, things that might change us for a temporary period of time, but the Word of God changes us not just for the here and now, not just for the days ahead, but for all of eternity. And it's only the ancient words, it's only the Word of God that can make that change in our hearts. And we're going to talk about that a little bit this morning as we jump back, or as we continue our study in Philippians chapter 2 this morning. Um, The Word of God, and you know we say it all the time, you hear me say it a lot around here, that the Word of God is our authority for faith and practice. It's not what somebody else says. It's not what we um, feel. It's not an emotion-based thing. It is, uh, it, it's actually quite factual. If we open God's word, we read God's word, we study God's word, we apply it to our lives, it will make a difference like nothing else in this world can do. So this morning, as I said, we're, we're going to get ahead, get back into our study in Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, if you will, take your copy of the scriptures and open there with me. Um, last Sunday was Memorial Day, uh, and we considered Jesus being the ultimate soldier, but we didn't even have to depart from our text to do that. Uh, we continued right here in Philippians, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 5 through 11, and we saw how you and I should have the mind of Christ, and that mind of Christ was a soldier mindset, a mindset that set you and I free from the bondage of sin, set us free from the grip, the stranglehold that Satan had over us. And Paul challenged us to have this mind, which is in Christ Jesus, to be in us, the followers of Christ, that humble attitude, that commitment to being obedient to the Father. Um, and it caused Jesus to act in a certain way. You'll remember over and over again that Jesus said, I've come to do the will of my Father who sent me. Jesus didn't even come to do his own will. Per se, he came to do the will of his Father. Now, his will and his Father's will were one. And that's the what, that's what you and I should strive for as well. That our will will be the Father's will. We will sync our will up with God's will. And you know, sometimes that's not our way. Sometimes we want, we want one thing and God knows another thing is better for us. And God doesn't give us what we want. And to that we should say, Praise God. Thank you for not always giving me what I want, but thank you for giving me what you know is best for me. So that humble attitude, that commitment to being obedient to the Father will cause us to act in a particular way. As a result of Jesus' actions, those actions that glorified his Father in heaven, he was exalted. We closed out our time together last week by being reminded that, G- that Jesus was exalted to his rightful place, given a name that is above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So it's safe to say that as we look at the attitude that sets the tone for God's God-honoring obedience, if we follow that example of Jesus Christ, we will be headed in the right direction. We'll be living in a way that honors our great God. Now, our text this morning, we're going to see that Paul challenges the Philippians and he challenges us uh, to follow that example, but to actually move from having a mindset or an attitude to action. And so the title of our message this morning is From Attitude to Action. Now, sometimes we have to adjust our attitude, right? I mean, when we were growing up, I think it was... um, 
was it Clint Eastwood that talked about having an attitude adjustment? Um, and that wasn't the kind of attitude adjustment that any of us want to have, right? Um, that was basically a slap upside the head and get your act together. Uh, we want the attitude adjustment to come from the word of God because as we said, that's the attitude that makes us different. And it's a lasting difference. It's, a, it's an ongoing, eternal uh, difference that God can make in our lives. So he turns his attention from following the example of Christ to the responsibilities that you and I have as Christ followers. What should you and I do now that we've, we've, we're working on adapting this mindset of Christ? How do I take that to the next step? How do I actually become a doer, as James says, a doer of the word and not just a hearer? Well, Let's take a look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Philippians chapter 2, it's not going to be on the screen, so I'm going to ask you to go ahead and take your copy of the scriptures and stand with me. Follow along as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Notice that very first word there. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, Not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God. Without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Yes, and if I am being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. For as the same reason, you also shall be glad and rejoice with me. Let's bow our heads and ask God to bless our time together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are uh, excited and looking forward to coming together in your word this morning. Uh, We've been learning from the book of Philippians about the, the, the fact that we have been called to be people of joy and that there is nothing in this world that can steal our joy from us unless we get our focus on the wrong thing. So we ask this morning that you help us to to keep our focus on our Savior Jesus Christ, keep our focus on the example that he set for us, and to help us to remember that our joy is not based in the here and now, but our joy is based on the fact of where we will spend eternity. And the promise from Jesus himself and even from you, the Father, is that if we have Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, if we've confessed our sins and we've repented of our sins and we are in a personal relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that we will have joy because our joy is in the work of Christ and not in the thoughts and works of men. Father, thank you for your word. We know that your word is what keeps us moving in the right direction, helps us to honor you, helps us to obey you. And so as we learn from your word this morning, we ask that you would help us not to just learn it in our minds, but to put it into practice in our everyday life. Bless our time in your word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, you may be seated. Now, as we look there at verse 12, we've read it already, Paul begins with that word, therefore. Now, 
with the word therefore, Paul is saying to us, because you have seen this or because this is true. So because you have seen this great example in Christ, we talked about that last week, and because you want to follow that example of humble obedience to the will of the Father, you can be or you must be more determined in your heart and in your mind to be obedient to the commands of Christ as you are now. Paul says we must work at that. It's not just going to come naturally because naturally what are we? The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. We want to have those things be real in our lives. So as those who have been born again, what comes naturally to us, we have to overcome that sometimes by the Holy Spirit who lives within us. We want to be submitting to the Spirit's working in our lives. And how do we do that? How do we know how the Spirit is leading? Well, again, it's being in the Word of God. If we fill ourselves with the word of God, if we are constantly reading, setting our minds on things that are above, the Froneo Project, if we're doing those things, our minds are going to be influenced and controlled by the word of God. It's not a mystical thing. It's a very common Easy thing to understand, as we read God's word, the Holy Spirit will teach us, direct us, lead us with the information we are gaining from the scriptures. So Paul says, therefore, with this mindset that you have in Jesus Christ, set your mind, set your attention on things that are right. Simply put, Paul is saying, this example that Christ provided for us should help us to be motivated to even greater obedience. Isn't that the goal of the child of God? To be obedient to the things of God. You and I, as people who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we want to obey God. We want to obey the things that we find in the pages of Scripture. And Paul says, this is what will help you do that. Paul goes on to tell us how we can actually have the mind of Christ. And Paul becomes extremely practical here in this section of Philippians. He brings the concept of the mind of Christ to a very applicable conclusion for us. Don't you love that? When, when the scriptures tie it all up in a nice little package and put a big bow on top of us and says, do this. And, and we certainly understand that if we're doing this, it's what God wants us to do. So Paul says here to us, the very first thing in our text, work out your own salvation. Work out your own salvation. Well, you say, Pastor, what is Paul saying there by work out your own salvation? I thought we couldn't work for our salvation. Well, you're right. We can't. So that's obviously not what Paul is saying, right? What Paul is saying here is prove the genuineness of your salvation, In other words, demonstrate your salvation to others. Let others know that your salvation is a reality. It's not just something that you talk about, but it's something that you live out in everyday life. Paul is not saying that salvation is the product of works. Some think that that's what he's trying to get across here, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying work for your salvation, He's saying, work to show your salvation, to prove your salvation, to demonstrate your salvation. Salvation, as we know, is a gift from God, straight up. God gives us a gift. It's a result of his grace. I mean, Paul's own salvation experience 
would refute the idea that, it's, that salvation is works-based. Paul was a man, actually Saul was a man on a mission. You know what his mission was? And he very much thought that his mission that he was on prior to salvation was something that was pleasing to God. His mission was to wipe out the church. One by one, he was on his way to not even a town in Jerusalem or in the Jerusalem area. He was on his way to Damascus. And his goal was to go there and find people who called, that, called themselves Christians or followers of Christ, followers of the way, actually, at that point. They were followers of Jesus Christ. He wanted to find those followers and literally drag them back to Jerusalem, drag them back to where they would be persecuted and put to death. His goal was to remove the influence of these Christ followers in his world because he was tied up in a religion that was based on works. And that religion did not work for him. And so God broke into his life. God stepped in in a very real way, just like you and I. We all have our salvation stories, right? We all have that moment in time where God broke into our lives and and said to us, uh, hey, You need to know me. You need to be rightly related to me through my son, Jesus Christ. And that's the blessing of the word of God. Way back in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah reminds us that the word of God will not return void to God, but it will accomplish that which God has sent it out to accomplish. Faith in Romans chapter 10 comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. Okay, so God's word goes out, pricks the heart of mankind, makes mankind realize he needs a savior and brings him to a point where he will confess and repent and trust in the work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. It's all about the work that Christ did and not about the works that I might do or that somebody else might try to do to balance out the scales. And aren't we glad for that? Because if it was a scale balancing thing, Ain't never going to happen. We're never going to be able to balance out the scales of my sin and my righteousness. Or better yet, my sin versus God's righteousness. Because my righteousness, man, that's like adding to the wrong side of the scale if I try to put my righteousness in there. Just makes it worse. Again, Isaiah says, all of my righteousness, all of our righteousness, even collectively, is nothing but filthy rags. So on that way to Damascus, God broke into Paul's life. And maybe you have a story to tell that God broke into your life, interrupted you in your plans, in your thoughts, in your purposes, and said, hey, this needs to stop. You need to know me, and you need to follow my ways. Maybe you'd like to share that story. We're not going to do that this morning, but maybe down the road, we'll give you an opportunity to share your story. We've done this before, where people have shared how God saved them, how God brought them into a right relationship with him. And you know what? We've never had anybody share with us that it was about what they did to make them right with God. It's always been about what Christ did to make them right with God. And you know what? Our our stories are very, very similar. Because it's all about Jesus, and it's not about me. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, here's the story. Here's really the, the basic plot to everybody's story. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, say it with me, not of works, lest any man should boast. And then he goes on and he says, because of that saving grace, that faith that Jesus gave to you and brought you into a right relationship with him, because of that truth, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You see, that's the story, my friends. We don't do the good works to get saved. We do the good works to show and demonstrate that we genuinely are saved. There's been a change in my life. That only God could bring about. The change is because of the work of Christ. So the wording here in verse 12 refutes a works-based salvation as does Paul's own testimony refute a works-based salvation. Paul says, work out your own salvation, not work for your salvation, but demonstrate your salvation to others. And, And we read about that in other places in scripture where it says, by your fruits... They will know that you are children of God, that you are followers of the one true God. So if Paul is not saying that salvation is a product of works, what is he saying when he says work out? Well, he's saying put into practice in your daily living what God has already worked out in you by his spirit. Wow. Put into practice in your daily living every day. And you know, let me just jump back to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, where it says, go into all the world. That word go, we often misinterpret that word. It th- we, we sometimes think that that's a command, right? But it's not a command. Jesus actually said to his disciples when he challenged them and gave them this great commission, he said, as you go out... Because that word go is actually in the Greek, it's a participle. So in your going, as you go, because Jesus knew we weren't going to stay in the same place all day long. Now, and, and believe me, couch potato was not something that was beyond his knowledge at that point in time. Okay, But he knew that it, as we live our life, as we grow, as we mature, we are going to go out, we are going to influence other people. So he said, in your going, as you're influencing people, make disciples. Tell others about the work of God, from the word of God, from the son of God, because that's what makes the difference. You see, he wants us to demonstrate that we are the work of God's gracious salvation accomplished through the atoning work of Christ on the cross of Calvary. That phrase, work out, was, a, was used in the first century to describe mining, okay? Probably most likely in the silver mines, where the silver was already there. But you know what? When, they, when the men that worked in the silver, silver mine, they went to work every day, the silver didn't jump out of the ground and into their bags, right? What did they have to do? You're right, Caleb. They had to work for it. They had to work hard for it. They had to dig into the ground for it. And they dug up a big chunk of dirt or ground, and they had to sift through that to make sure, where's the silver? Oh, there's no silver in this batch. Throw it out. So then they had to dig up another batch. Oh, there's some silver, so they kept digging and they kept working. They, they knew the silver was there, but they had to get it out. Someone might say, I work in the silver mines. And another person might say, okay, show me how productive your day's work was. I want to see how much silver you have from the work that you did today. 
You know, I can say I work in the silver mines, but unless I'm producing silver at the end of the day, my boss isn't going to be very happy with me, is he? He might send me back and say, go dig some more because you didn't bring anything back today. We must allow the work of God to be born out in our lives. Working out is proof that you are who you say you are or you are what you say you are. We see this again over in the book of Ephesians. I already quoted it for you. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We are his what? His workmanship in Christ Jesus. And because we are his workmanship, what does Paul say we should be doing? We should be doing good works. And guess what? Here's another thought. God has already prepared those good works for us to do. Work out those good works which God prepared beforehand. And why did he prepare them? He prepared good works for you specifically to do. I'm not to do your good works and you're not to do my good works. God prepared good works for me to do and he prepared good works for you to do. Why? That we might bring glory to God. That we might walk in them. We might faithfully carry out those good works. You see, we are saved by grace through faith. And because of our salvation, we need to do the works of him who called us out of darkness into light. It's the process of becoming more like Jesus. What do we call that process? We call it the process of sanctification. Sanctification. You and I becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. Now, we've had a few people uh, here at Calvary say, hey, I want to get baptized. And as those people express that desire to be baptized, we are careful to communicate to them that baptism is not a works that makes you right before God. In fact, we call it, what do we call it around here? We call it believer's baptism, right? That word believers identifies how, uh, what a person must be before they can be baptized. They must be a believer in Jesus Christ. They must be a follower of Jesus Christ. We go through lots of things to help individuals understand that baptism is in no way a work that makes you right before God. But you know what baptism is? Baptism is a work that sets you on the right track of doing more good works. To demonstrate your salvation. Not to earn your salvation, but to say, hey, yes, I know Jesus Christ as my, as my personal Savior. And I want to live my life in a way that will honor God and glorify God. I want others to see Christ in me. That's the works flowing out. When they see us do the good works that God ordained we should do, Christ then is flowing out from us. Baptism doesn't help us get saved. It is an outworking of our salvation. Which brings me to another point. And I want to I emphasize this point this morning. If you're here today and you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and you've not been baptized, can I ask you, why not? Now, I don't expect you to give me an answer. But I do want you to think about that. Well, I'm too young. I don't know that that, that's a good enough excuse because the Philippian jailer and his household were baptized. There were young people in his household, most likely. If you're here this morning and you know Jesus as your Savior, 
What prevents you from taking that step of obedience and saying, yes, please, I want to be baptized. I want to obey Jesus Christ. You might say, well, I was baptized when I was a little baby. It doesn't count. So what do you mean it doesn't count? Well, were you a believer at that point in time? Did you know Jesus as your Savior at that point in time? No. This morning we went over to Josh to Faith, where Josh is uh, one of the pastors. Why did we go there? Well, because Esme was being dedicated. We don't do dedicate. We don't do baby baptisms here, or there. What we do, what is called a dedication, if somebody wants that, and this really has absolutely nothing to do with the baby. Okay, it has everything to do with the parents. And what did Josh and Katie? pledged to do this morning by having a dedication of Esme. They, pled, they pledged with the accountability, make themselves accountable to their church family. They pledged to raise Esme the way they're raising the other two that would help them see their need of salvation early in life and point them to the direction of saving faith. Now, Josh and Katie can't do anything to save their kids. None of us can do that. But we can certainly provide the influence and we can provide the atmosphere that will point them in the right direction where they will trust Jesus Christ as their Savior and then follow the the command. And by the way, baptism is a command. It's not an option. If you want to be obedient to God, you should say, yes, I want to be baptized. I want to do that because Jesus said, be baptized. It's a command. It's not an option. So, But it's not something that brings us to salvation either. It's a demonstration of our salvation. One writer makes this analogy. He says, salvation can can be compared to a huge gift that needs to be unwrapped for one's thorough enjoyment. Now, at Christmas time, especially when you're little, you have this one gift that your heart is set on. I want this one gift. We used to make a, a list to give to my mom uh, for Christmas time. And we had one big gift, and then we had a couple of other little gifts, so there was more than just one thing to unwrap under the tree. But the one big gift, we have the same, this tradition in our house where we have a candy cane that has each one of our kids' names on the, on the candy cane. That's the gift tag for the big gift. Okay? Now, sometimes the big gift comes in a package like this, but it's the one we spent the most money on. Okay, so the big gift, the gift that you really want to have. Can you imagine getting the big gift and never unwrapping it? Never happened in my house. Not when I was growing up, not when we have Christmas now. Never, ever happened. And I can guarantee it never will happen. Because that big gift is something you want. God's gift of salvation is so big. We can't even fathom it. But it's a gift that God has given to us. The gift of everlasting life. We've not done anything. In fact, we can't do anything to earn that gift. We can't do anything to make it so we deserve that gift. It's a gift that's been given to us freely. You know what else? I can tell you this. Sometimes that big gift... We have to save up for that big gift. And sometimes it's a sacrifice for the giver to give that gift. Like, we might, we certainly couldn't buy all three gifts 
at one time from one paycheck sometimes. So we save up. We, we plan to give that gift. And you know what? We would be brokenhearted if our kids just said, oh, I don't like it, I don't want it. It's not that big a deal. But you know what? People say that to God all the time. That gift of Jesus on the cross, not that big a deal. Can I tell you, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the greatest gift available to you was wrapped in swaddling clothes, placed in a manger, and grew up the perfect, holy Son of God, went to the cross, wrapped with a crown of thorns around his head, paid the penalty of my sins and your sins, so that you might have and receive the greatest gift ever made possible for mankind. So you see, you and I, we don't work for our salvation, we work out our salvation. And as we're working out our salvation, everyone around us should see our salvation. It should be a reality. It shouldn't be something that we hide and and keep just to ourselves. Paul goes on to say that we work out our salvation with fear, yes, with fear and with trembling. Well, what does he mean when he says with fear and trembling? Well, he means that we work it out with practical faith. Practical faith. Now, I put up a little chart on the next screen, so go ahead and go to that chart for us if you would, Ryan. Um, This chart comes from William... Well, actually, the chart doesn't come from William Hendrickson. I made the chart, but the idea, the thought process here comes from William, William Hendrick's commentary on the New Testament. He really does a pretty good job of explaining what fear and trembling means, okay? When he says not in fear and trembling, he's talking about not in a spirit of half-heartedness or a divided mind. We see that over in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 21. You can look at that. You can look that up later on today. When we have a spirit of fear and trembling, we're not operating in a spirit of half-heartedness or a divided mind. Neither are we operating in a spirit of disrespect and disdain as we see over in Acts chapter 17, verse 18. Another thing that we are not operating under, the spirit of fear and trembling, is not a spirit of trust in self. It's not something that says, hey, I've got this all figured out. This is the the way it's got to be. It's got to be my way. Not trusting in self as we see in Matthew 26, 31. Neither is it in self-righteousness. We've talked about that already this morning, right? What is our righteousness like? Our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. So it's not in a spirit of half-heartedness or a divided mind or disrespect and disdain or trust in self or self-righteousness. But instead, this idea of fear and trembling is in a spirit of wholeheartedness, a singleness of purpose. Psalm 119, verse 10 and 34. We know what Psalm 119 is all about, right? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Every paragraph in Psalm 119, the longest psalm, the longest, if you will, chapter in the Bible is all about the word of God. Can we be any more explicit about how important God's word is? I don't think so. If God places the longest chapter in his book to you and I about the Bible, how important then is the Bible? 
It should be our only authority. We want to have wholeheartedness, singleness of purpose, bound up in the pages of Scripture. We also want to have the spirit of reverence and awe. And you know what that reverence and awe is? It's being afraid to offend God in any way. Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, and Hebrews chapter 12, verse 28. I should never want my God to be offended by what I do. Whether that's the way I'm living my life or the things that come out of my mouth, I should not want God to be offended by those things. That's living in fear and trembling. He also talks about the idea of trusting in God. Our fear and our trembling says that we trust in God. Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 12. Trusting in God. And you know what that really boils down to? That boils down to faith. And what is faith? Anybody? Believing that God is able to do what he says he will do and ordering my life accordingly. And where does he say what he will do? In his word. Thank you, Cindy. Absolutely. His word reveals to us what he wants us to do. And then lastly, humility. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. And we saw it again last week. Let this mind be in you. Jesus, who humbled himself and became obedient to what? Death. Even death on the cross. So this fear and trembling is the result of practical faith. And then we also see here, as we think about this idea of working out our own salvation, Paul says, it is God that produces the works in you. God produces the work. I don't produce the work. God is busy making those things happen. Without this phrase here in the text, we would become extremely frustrated in the Christian life. You say, why, Pastor? Well, because we would try and try and try only to fail. Our works don't get us anywhere with God. So I'm thankful that God produces his work in us. You know what this, you know what Paul is saying here? Paul is saying that God is energizing us to do his will, placing the right desires in my heart and in my mind, and then to do those things, to make those things happen in my life, and it results in his honor and his glory. So all of that to talk about how we work out our salvation. Paul goes on then in verses 14 through 16, and he talks about working with the right attitude. Attitude, You and I, we must portray the mind of Christ. Verses 14 through 16. We must portray the mind of Christ. How do we portray the mind of Christ? Any ideas? Go ahead. Shout them out for me while I have a little drink of water here. Okay, by our humbleness, we portray the mind of Christ. What else? The love we show. show. Yeah. God demonstrated his love by sending his son. How do we demonstrate God's love through us to others? Yep. Right? Sacrifice and forgiveness. Communicating the good news. Yeah. All right, so Paul has, uh, has some things for us as he talks about portraying the mind of Christ. Verse 14 of our text says, that's chapter 3. 
um, says, do all things without complaining and disputing. What do we have here? Paul says, you need to have a positive response. Do all things without complaining and disputing. There's a phrase here we might want to skip over and pretend it's not there. Paul says, do all things. Can you tell me what is all things? That's the only time I'm going to let you get away with defining something by using what we're trying to define. Okay? It's pretty simple, right? All things means all things. It means everything. It means nothing is left out. Do all things without murmuring and disputing. Without complaining. So Paul's saying everything we do, we should do without complaining. I'm going to be honest with you this morning. I try to be honest with you every morning. You know what? I'm guilty of not doing this. I complain sometimes. That's not a surprise to you, is it? We all do it. But Paul says we shouldn't do it. Do all things without murmuring or complaining. I remember hearing a friend of mine's father preach a message from this passage of Scripture when I was in college and went home for the weekend. Um, and, and some of you know Pastor Garner, Steve Rofe's uncle. Um, he was preaching uh, on this verse. And Pastor Garner knew the Greek language very well. Okay, there was no getting around that. He, knew, he, he, he read the scriptures in Greek. He knew the Greek. And he's, remember, I remember him telling us what this word was in Greek. He leaned over the pulpit, and he was a big guy. He leaned over the pulpit, and he screwed up his mouth, and he says, this word is gongasmus. Gongasmus. He said, it even sounds like complaining to us and hearing it in English, doesn't it? Yeah. Gongasmus. Do all things without gongasmusin. That's what we should be doing without disputing, without complaining. Let me take you to an Old Testament illustration of what murmuring and complaining is all about. We find it in Numbers chapter 16. You don't have to turn there. You can if you want. I'm going to read it to you. Um, Some of the people in the Old Testament in Israel were, were challenging and complaining about Israel's leadership. The leadership that was consistently following the Lord's direction and trying to lead the people of Israel. And there were people complaining about that. Can you believe it? Okay, just asking. Here's the text. Numbers chapter 16, verses 41 through 49. It says, On the next day, all the congregation of the children of Israel complained against Moses and Aaron. Not just one or two of them. All the congregation complained against Moses and Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. Now, let me give you a little bit of background here. This is when the, the, the ground opened up and swallowed a bunch of people for lunch. Okay? The people, Korah and his group, were complaining about Moses' leadership. And, and, and he, you, you know, they, were, they were saying, you can't do this. It's not your right. You're not supposed to do this. And Moses said, okay, let's settle it this way. Let's have those of you that are against us over on this side, those of you that are for us over on this side, and we're going to pray and we're going to ask God to show us whose side is the right side. Okay? So God, Moses prayed. And God opened up the ground over here for Korah and his, his followers, and the ground swallowed them up. 
just gone. Swallowing them up, just like, a, just like a big mouth for lunch. Okay? Now, as it happened, when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting. Now, you would have thought that the ground having those guys for lunch would have been enough evidence that Moses and the leadership were moving in the right direction, right? That's what you would think. Remember, Israel's sometimes very obstinate, okay? Here's what happens to these people. Not just Korah, because they're already gone, okay? Now it happened, when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron, that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud, and that wasn't just any cloud, that was the cloud, okay? The cloud that they followed by day and by night. It was God's leading the cloud, and God, in essence, in the cloud, directing them. The cloud uh, was over the tabernacle, and the glory of the Lord appeared, Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. Uh Uh-oh. When God's not happy, it's not a good place to be. He says, Moses and Aaron, get away from the congregation. I'm going to consume them. They're going to be gone. And they, Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces So Moses said to Aaron, take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. In other words, God was starting to wipe out the congregation of Israel. Why? Because of a complaining spirit among them. It goes on to say, Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the assembly, and already the plague had begun among the people. So he put in the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stopped. Now those who died in the plague, get this, not just one or two, 14,700 besides those who died in the Korah incident. Wow, God's serious about this complaining stuff, isn't he? He doesn't want it to be part of us as followers of Christ. Complaining is a bad attitude expressed by grumbling and even spreads, you know, the the thing about complaining, it just doesn't stay with one person. As they complain to somebody else, they start complaining and so on and so on and so on and the complaining spreads. Yeah. That's why it says all the congregation was complaining because it's very contagious. You start yawning and then everybody else starts yawning. You start complaining and it runs rampant. Paul says, don't complain. No murmuring. And he says, no disputing. This would be questions or criticisms. Actually could mean legal disputes. Some have suggested this disputing resulted in people within the Philippian church taking others to court and suing a brother or a sister in Christ in the courts in Philippi amongst the unbelievers. What does that do to the testimony of the church? (laughs) Terrible. And it doesn't even have to go to courts. When people are murmuring and complaining in the church, the testimony of the church is harmed by it. Paul wants to make sure that we are not complaining, we are not disputing, we are glorifying God by what we do and what we say. These expressions of negativity, these 
these complaining attitudes and critical spirits are things that the Lord opposes because they do harm in the body of Christ. So you and I, as children of God, as followers of Christ, what do we do? We must follow the example of Christ. We can't let these negative attitudes creep into our lives because they prevent us from doing the work that God has called us to do. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 11 We see very clearly what you and I as believers are called to do. We're called, therefore, to encourage one another and to build one another up. You see, when you and I are positively responding to the work of God in our lives, then we put complaining and we put disputing on the side. We don't let it become involved in our our personal lives, and we move forward. We also want to be reminded in verse 15 that this is a, there's a proven lifestyle here. That you might be children of God that represent your Father well. Isn't that our goal as children of God? To represent God well. We used to tell our kids that when they would go away for a weekend or go someplace uh, with a, like on a school trip or go to camp, I used to say to them, hey, remember... You're representing the Mauer's name. And more importantly, you're representing God. So as we represent who we are personally, our family, and then we stretch that out to represent God, we want to make sure that we represent our families and our Father well. First of all, we see here in verse 15, perfection on display. Verse 15, Paul says, That you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Perfection on display. That's what you and I have the opportunity to be because of what Christ did in us. Not because of our works, but because of what Christ did in us. You and I have the opportunity to be perfection on display. What does that mean? Well, Paul says it means that you're blameless. Now, please understand this. It doesn't mean that you're perfect, because none of us are, right? None of us can measure up to that, that stature of perfectness. Only Jesus Christ could. But the idea of perfection here, it, it, if we look back to the Old Testament, the man by the name of Joseph, we see an example there. The Bible says he was perfect. What does that mean? First of all, it means that he was blameless. It means that there, was no, there wasn't something that a person could say, hey, look at Joseph. He's doing this bad thing. He's doing this evil thing. He's doing this wrong thing. You know what blameless means? It means you can't be accused of ongoing sinfulness in your life. That's really what it means. Paul says you also need to be harmless, blameless and harmless. This has the idea of being pure. It was used when talking about a pure metal as opposed to an alloy. Sorry, alloy. I think I've told you about Barb's ring when we, when we lived. I bought her an engagement ring and gave it to her. We got married. We went to South Africa. And, you know, South Africa is known for its precious metals, right? So she wanted to change the style of her ring. She wanted to have it a, a wide band that had a little hole in it and the diamond sat in the hole because she saw somebody else's like that. She said, I really like that. So we took it to a jeweler and the jeweler said, I'll melt it down. I'll add to it what I need to add to it and I will make the new ring and it'll look just like what you want it to look like. So we did. We took it there. They did what they 
sort of said what they would do. Um, but she started wearing it, and you know what? Her finger didn't turn green, but it started to get a rash right here. So she'd have to take it off and put it on the windowsill and put cream on it. And she couldn't wear her ring all the time like she wanted to because of this rash. So we went to a different jeweler. And we said, Is this, should this be happening? And he said, absolutely not. So he takes the ring off and he puts it under his little magnifying glass. And he starts looking at it and he says, this is not gold. What do you mean it's not gold? We paid for gold. It's not gold. Because I can see the impurities in this ring. I said, well, the last jeweler we took it to said they were going to melt down the ring we gave them and then they were going to add gold to it and make what we wanted. He said, well, they added something to it, all right. So he said, I said, so how do you fix it? He said, well, we've got to start over. We've got to melt this down and take the impurities out and remake the ring. And so that's what they did. And we had to put more gold in it. Now it's the right stuff, and she hasn't had a problem with it since, okay? But you see, it's either gold or it's not gold, right? Either you're living like a Christian or you're not living like a Christian. We want to be harmless in the things that we do and how we live life. And then Paul goes on, one more thing he says here under the idea of perfection on display, he says that we're without fault, This idea of being without fault was used to describe the animals when they were brought to the temple or to the tabernacle for sacrifices. They were without blemish. Okay, They were untainted by sin. So Paul says, put your perfection on display. Blameless, harmless, without fault. And we also see in verse 15 that our proven lifestyle should be unswayed by perversity. He says, In the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, this phrase explains the need for us to be blameless, right? What kind of world do you and I live in? Can we use this terminology to describe the world we live in? Crooked and perverse. I'll let you decide that. My vote would be yes. We could use those words to describe the world in which we live today. Because we are the representatives of God, because we're followers of Jesus Christ, we live in a world that desperately needs God. And we are the demonstration of God in this world. Somebody wrote a song that says, You're the only Jesus some will ever see. So what does that mean for me? I better live like Jesus, right? I better live the way God wants me to live. This idea of being crooked and perverse. Crooked is something that is not straight. Not straight like it should be. Okay? Now, I've explained to you before the the columns in our church in South Africa. Um, Some of them were pretty straight. But the ones on the side, they did after lunch on Friday. You know what that means? It's worse than that. They got paid Friday morning, the last Friday of the month. Where do you think they went? They, got, they drank their paycheck, and they came back. And so they were looking there, and they were making the columns, and the columns, instead of going like this, they went... They were crooked. And I wasn't there to check it out. I mean, I only saw it a day or two later, and once it's done, it's done. So what are we supposed to do now? We have these crooked columns. In the church building, how do we fix it? So we actually 
encased their crooked columns with tongue and groove pine. Some of them are this wide, some of them were this wide. It depends on how crooked the column was. Okay? But, but Paul says, don't be crooked. If you're supposed to be straight, be straight. We get the word scoliosis from this word crooked. How many of you, when you were growing up in school, had to go to the nurse's office every so often and they would do a scoliosis test? What do they do? They tell you, bend over. And so you bend over and they look at your spine. And if your spine does this, they say you have scoliosis. I remember the first time that they told me that in the nurse's office. I go, what in the world is that? Scoliosis, that sounds bad. Barb had a chiropractor that she used to go to in South Africa. He had two strings attached to the ceiling, just as tight as could be. They came all the way down to the floor. Perfect straight line. He would make you go stand with your spine in between those two lines, and he would tell where it was out, where, where it did this kind of thing. And then he would adjust accordingly. Perfectly straight. If, hey, Mark, if your back's not perfectly straight, then it doesn't feel good. Ben could tell us the same thing this morning. Okay, So we want to be straight in this crooked world, in this perverse world. This word perverse takes the description to even worse states. It means severely distorted and twisted. Instead of being right, True, it's distorted. It's twisted. You ever, <laughs> we probably don't buy very much lumber these days just because of the price of lumber, right? You think what you pay now for lumber, it ought to, all, every stack of, every wood in the stack that you go to at Lowe's ought to be perfectly straight, right? Depending on what I'm doing with that piece of wood, I could spend half an hour going through the wood on the rack to find what I want that's straight. Some of it's really bad, and it ends up on their call cart. If I only need a piece this big, then I'll take it over there and say, hey, uh, this piece of wood's really bad. Uh, can I get it for a dollar? Sure, we're not going to get anything for it anyway, so they mark it down, take it up, and cut out the one little straight piece that is there. And, and you bonfire, that's what the rest of it's good for. Okay? As Christians, we want to be straight and true in this crooked and perverse generation that we live in. Paul goes on to say that we are to be producers of light. He says, among whom you shine as lights in the world. Paul, notice, notice that Paul says you shine as lights in the world. The question is, how bright do we shine? How bright do we shine as lights in this world? Remember, Paul's talking to Christians here, Okay? He's telling us we need to let our light shine brightly. Several months ago, we were working on the church building after the sprinkler system malfunction. We had several churches show up on a Saturday, even on a Friday, to help us with the work day. Carl brought this really cool thing to, to, to church that day. And we had it there because people were painting. And you know... And people were filling holes in the drywall. You know what you need to find out if the drywall looks really good? Light. And lots of it. You know what you need when you're painting so you make sure you don't miss any spots? Light. So Carl brought this really cool light. Had two heads on it. Uh, it, was on a, it was on a stand. And I got to tell you, I was having a problem with that last commandment there. It says, thou shalt not covet your neighbor's things. 
I really wanted a light like that. I, I even asked him, where'd you get that light? And he said, oh, the kids and, and Amanda bought it for me for Christmas, told me all about it. And man, it was the coolest light. I didn't really want his light. I just wanted one like it. So I began looking and trying to find one. I found one online, but the store was in, I don't know, Michigan or something like that. And I thought, nah, because I, you know, you know me, I don't want to spend a lot of money for good things. I want to be able to get them at a good price. Okay, so I'm looking and looking and looking, and I finally found one, and I looked, oh, it's not anywhere near us, and maybe when we go out to Illinois, I could stop and pick it up. Nah, forget that idea. So that was, what, a year and a half ago or something like that? That was a while ago. So ever since then, I've been looking for a light. So I found one. It's cordless. I plug it in. I charge it up. It gives me, you know, careful your eyes, okay? Because I'm telling you. It's bright. It'll go like five hours like that. And if I don't like it that bright, I can go like this. And make it a little less bright. Okay? It'll go for like seven hours like that. I got it so I can play corn toss at night. So I can adjust my lights where they go, and I can play, you know, so he can see. So I, when Micah beats me, it's, I can at least see how bad my throw was. Now, I got the stand at a garage sale. These are the lights that were on it. That's how bright that one is. Hey, it came on. It doesn't always come on. Now... Not nearly as bright as those ones, right? Now, part of the problem with these ones, she thought the bulb was blown when she sold it to me. But look how dirty they are. What do we need to do to make these lights more effective? Clean them. We need to take the screen off. We need to take the glass out. We need to clean them. I won't tell you what it looks like is on them. But anyway, we need to clean them. And then they'll be more effective. You know what? Sometimes, as Christians, we need to clean our lights. Because they're not shining very brightly. They're kind of mucked up. They're dirty. They might even need to have a new bulb put into them. How do we get get it cleaned up? What did David say? When he committed sin with Bathsheba, you know that passage in the scripture where he confesses his sins? He says, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Wow. How does that purging, how does that washing take place? Is it any surprise to you if I tell you that it takes place with this book? This is the only way to get clean. Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his ways? You know what the next phrase is? By taking heed thereto to the word of God. Taking heed thereto to the word of God. So that means I need to examine my heart. I need to examine my life. I need to see if I need some cleansing from God's word to make my light shine brightly again. We confess our wrong behavior, but we can't just stop there with confessing it. We need to start doing the right thing. 
Confession is great, but confession is only part of it. I need to take the wrong out and plug the right in. It's that whole substitutionary process that Paul talks about. If I confess it, that just means that I've cleaned up the outside a little bit. But if the light's still dim, I need to fix the light itself. So Paul says, I need to start shining brightly. I need to start doing what is right. Not just confessing, but getting rid of all the dirt and putting a new light bulb in if I need to. I need to let the word of God wash me thoroughly and cleanse me. And then Paul goes on, and we're going to close up here with this idea. He rejoices over the proclamation of light. In verse 16, he rejoices over the proclamation of light. He says there, holding fast. Nick and Cindy will love this. Holding fast what? The word of life. Used to be one of Word of Life's theme verses. Holding fast the faithful word. Holding fast the word of life. Okay, he goes on to say, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain nor labored in vain. So how do I rejoice in this proclamation of light? Paul says, we hold fast the word of life. Now, there's two schools of thought here about holding fast, and we'll work through this quickly. Holding fast the word of life could mean a steadfastness in which our lights blaze continually for God. being refreshed and renewed by the word of God. Holding forth the word of life has the idea of projecting our light into the darkness of the world. Holding forth fits our context nicely in that it starts the project and it shines the light into the darkness of the world around us, into that crooked and perverse generation. The light of God that shines from me with its source in the word of God begins to expose the darkness. And people see their need of changing their lifestyle, whether it's what they say or what they do. You know, when we get saved, there should be a change in the words that come out of our mouth. When we get saved, there should be a change in the things we participate in. When we get saved, our Facebook profile should get saved. We're talking about, Pastor. Well, the things you post on Facebook, are you shining as light or is it making your light dirty? Is it making it cloudy? Is it making it perverted? Is it sharing stuff that you shouldn't be sharing? As a child of God, you don't know who sees that. Everybody can see it. So I need to let my light shine as a child of God so that when I, the things I share on my Facebook page should demonstrate that I love Jesus and not the things of this world. The word of life, of course, refers, refers to the word of God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then Paul talks about that I might rejoice in the day of Christ. You know what this is? This is our blessed hope. The day of Christ here refers to the rapture of the church. And can I say that one more time? Because I really need to hear an amen from you. We're talking about the rapture of the church. And what is so important about the rapture of the church? That's when Jesus comes in the clouds and he catches his bride away. That's you and I. That's the church. It's not just Calvary Baptist Church. It's all those who are true believers from the day of Pentecost until that day. The rapture happens. We are caught up in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump for the trump will sound and the dead in Christ will rise first and those of us who are alive and remain shall be caught up, raptured. And you and I are going home. 
where we are meant to be. But until we go home, we need to shine as lights in a dark world because the world around us needs the light. And if we're not shining, if we're not living in harmony with God's word and with one another, the world doesn't see the light. It gets blocked out. The day of Christ is the time when Christ returns for his church and when believers have their works inspected and rewarded. In other words, God shines the real light on the works and he tells whether they're genuine works or they're fit for the burn pile. The Philippians have passed on the good news that they have received from Paul and that makes Paul rejoice. When, when I see good works going on in our church, when I see God's people stepping up and doing what God wants them to do, it makes me rejoice. But more importantly than that, it makes God rejoice. Makes God pleased with our lifestyle. And then we see that you and I, we must establish a habit of good works. Knowing that I have not run or labored in vain. You know what Paul's talking about here? He speaks of our energetic activity, our Christian walk, or better said, the race that requires we spend energy. It's not meant to be a walk in the park or stroll along the beach. The Christian life requires that you and I expend energy to the glory of God. He talks about about laboring, knowing that I have not labored in vain. It reminds us of the effort and the hard work that goes into the Christian life. I can, I can readily tell you some of the days that were the hardest days work in my life. One of them off the top of my head was when we unloaded a truck of sheetrock. The six-foot sheetrocks, sheets weren't that bad. Eight-foot ones were a little bit more difficult. When we got to the 12-foot ones, right, Nick? They're not easy to unload. And complicate that by the fact that I was probably 16 years old, and the pastor that I was helping unload was a string bean. He was probably six foot three and probably weighed, I don't know, less than 200 pounds. I mean, I'm talking like this right here. That's how skinny he was. When the wind blew and caught those 12-foot sheets of sheetrock, it took us with him. That was a hard day's work. Another hard day's work, I remember we were at Camp Manitoumi, and we were cleaning, they had an old pool. And every summer, we had to clean the pool. We dumped chemicals down in there, we dumped bleach down in there, we got in down in there with scrub brushes, and we scrubbed it. And we were, we were in a 12-foot end of the pool, 10-foot end of the pool, I don't know, it was deep, it was way over my head, and we're scrubbing with all the bleach down there and whatever other chemicals are down there, and you had to walk backwards to get up into the three-foot section so you could get some fresh air. By the time I was done, I, I went to the store, and I bought probably a six-pack of water, and I downed it. I just kept drinking and drinking and drinking because you didn't want to drink the water at camp. But anyway, um, it was a hard day. And you know what? In the Christian life, God never said it would be easy. God never said it would be a stroll in the park. We, have, we labor We work hard, and God wants us to work hard. The Christian life is a hard life, but God has given us all that we need. He's fully equipped us to do that work. And then lastly, we see that we strive to produce fruit. 
Paul says, I'm rejoicing over the fruitful works of one another. Paul worked hard. The fruitful works that Paul saw in his own life was a result of him being poured out. Paul says, I've been poured out like a sacrifice of your faith. Paul's painting another one of those word pictures for us here. He's going back to the picture from the Old Testament when the Jews would offer their sacrifice to God. And at the end of the sacrifice, they would pour wine on the sacrifice and the wine would be instantly vaporized. And the steam would rise up. And that rising up of the steam symbolized the offering to God himself. And it's what made the offering, the sacrifice acceptable to God. Poured out as a drink offering. Everything was spent. Didn't have anything left. Paul was pleased here in Philippians with his situation in life. He says, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. He was not disappointed. He wasn't bitter about his life. In fact, it was quite the opposite. He rejoiced in the faithful service that God allowed him to have with the Philippian believers. And then he was rejoicing over the faithfulness of the Philippians as they lived out their testimony and shared the gospel with others. And then Paul said, I want you Philippians to have the right perspective on life. You, as, Philipp- as believers, you be glad and you rejoice with me. Don't feel guilty. Why, why was Paul saying don't feel guilty? Because he was in prison partly because of the Philippians' life. He was in prison and he was writing this letter to the Philippians from prison. He said, I don't want you to be sad. I want you to be glad. And I want you to rejoice with me because of what God is doing through you and through me and through us collectively. He wanted the Philippians to rejoice because God was pleased to accept their offering and his offering. Again, a reminder of our theme for the book of Philippians. It's all about joy. A while ago, our daughter Rachel shared this with me about joy. She said, she knew I was at the time, talking about joy and preaching about joy, she said, you know what, Dad, I read this the other day. It says, joy is an overwhelming internal sense of gladness rooted in truth, which overflows into external interactions despite outward circumstances. That's a long quote, but it's worth noting. It's worth remembering. Joy, an overwhelming internal sense of gladness. Rooted in truth, which overflows into external interactions regardless of our outward circumstances. It's what we've been saying since we started this study in Philippians, isn't it? Our joy is not dependent on what's going on in our lives. It's dependent on the truth of God's word. Well... Paul moves us from a challenge to have the same mind as Christ last week, verses two through 11, or 5 through 11, to actually working towards that obedience. He reminds us that the mindset is working out our salvation. We call it sanctification. It shows others that we indeed are the children of God. So remember this. When we're working, so there is a light, we are a light in the darkness. We want our light to shine as bright as possible. We don't want the, the things that we say or do or think to make us dirty like these lights. These are filthy. They don't work because they're all mucked up. We want to make sure that our Christian life is centered on what the Word of God says so that the light shines brightly.
you're here this morning and you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's your job. That's your responsibility to shine bright in a dark world. If you're here this morning and you're not saved, you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you know what? You're dirtier than those lights are. And you don't have a light to shine. But we can take care of that. We can help you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior this morning if that's something you would like to do. Let's determine in our hearts and in our minds today as we close in prayer to be like the Apostle Paul and let the, let the light of Jesus Christ shine brightly from us into the dark world just like the light of Jesus. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you so much for your word. Father, we can't emphasize your word enough. We can't say how important your word is. It's your word that teaches us. It's your word that keeps us on the right path. It's your word that keeps us focused and living life in a way that honors you. Father, that's our prayer. That's our hope. We want to honor you with our life. We want our life to be a light that shines out, shines bright, shines clear, shines the truth of your word. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for allowing us to be part of your family. And thank you for placing the light of Christ in, within us. Father, encourage us now as we leave this place this morning. Help us to enjoy our time with our families. And maybe even some of us will have the opportunity to communicate the truth of God, the truth of Jesus Christ to somebody this afternoon. And what a blessing and what an honor it would be as we communicate that truth and love to see others come to know Jesus as their Savior. Father, thanks for your love for us, demonstrated in your son Jesus, in whose name we pray, amen. Mark's gonna come and lead us, closing song, Lord, I lift your name on high.